0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today?
1: Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels 96 and Paul, you know what? Else today is? I don't know. What? It is our one hundredth episode of Okie dokie Mose.
0: Woohoo Yeah. Man,
1: can you believe that?
0: Uh you know what? Yes I can. <laughs> <laughs> I I like the honesty. <laughs> yeah. It's been good though. Yeah. It has been so good. Mm-hmm. Learned so much.
1: Yeah, we are thankful to be at this point, and hopefully you are as well as the listener. Yeah. Yeah, so real quickly from last week, we saw where Jesus was given a picture of what it's going to look like when Messiah returns, the kingdom is beginning to be established, and um, it's much different than what our expectation is, where... Western evangelical culture has told us that it's the Left Behind series where <laughs> all the righteous people are whisked off into heaven and all the unrighteous people are are uh, left on earth. Uh, Jesus says that one's going to be taken and one's going to be left behind, and the person that's taken is going to be the one where there's going to be vultures gathering around the corpses, which kind of indicates that that person is going to be experiencing death and judgment and the person left behind is actually experiencing life on earth yeah really cool picture um and then we had an extended series uh over prayer where we saw an unrighteous judge and a widow the widow was coming to him repeatedly uh for request and like in an unrighteous manner he gives in not because he's doing the right thing but just because he wants her to stop coming to him and Jesus is trying to show in the same way in prayer how much more that Colv Comer, God who is a righteous judge is going to meet you in your request. He's yeah. going to hear what you need uh, even if in the moment in our flawed broken reality and the way that we perceive the world if it doesn't seem like he's answering our request he still has our best needs at, uh, at heart and his intention yeah. is to to provide for us and take care of us.
0: Yeah, always our best, whether we recognize it or not.
1: Yeah, and then finally we had uh, a Pharisee and um, a tax collector going to pray, and we we saw the, the pridefulness of the Pharisee keeping the law, saying he was glad he wasn't like all these other sinners that were coming to the temple, and the tax collector just comes humbly and asks for mercy. And we just see the upside-down nature of the kingdom at the end. It's like whoever wants to be exalted has to humble himself.
0: Yeah. See, it, it, The funny thing is, it, I think if anybody were to join in at any point in the podcast, they would find some surprising things. Wait, you think it says, what, what? But if you've been following along from the beginning, I think you have to recognize the message in the Gospels is so consistent. All the way across, mm-hmm. and I guess I mean obviously you can disagree with us, but you know it feels like we're giving a very reasonable, consistent, defensible interpretation all the way through, and it's it's uh, it's really good. Agreed. But you know what we're going to do, Samuel? What's that? We are just going to completely switch topics. We're just there is no connection to anything now. We're moving on. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And again, we think we're going chronologically the best we can according to other people's work. You know, we're just trying to piece it together. But where that's going to bring us, we haven't done this for a long time. We are actually looking at a section of Scripture. This is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, and it's also Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. And I think in this case, I'm going to go ahead and read Mark, even though you might think Matthew has a little more info. That's what we usually do. But for whatever reason, I chose this one. So here we go. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, And in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, we seriously switched topics, and this is good stuff, huh?-hmm <laughs> yeah, let's see there are a lot of different ways that you can take this little section of scripture, so it's good that we're going to talk about it because I think there's a there's uh there are areas where certain people they just go too far okay but number one, let's just some details beyond the Jordan. Now, it's difficult to determine any kind of specific location from this little portion of the text. Many believe that this statement is suggesting that, remember, we were talking about we were in uh, Galilee and Samaria as if they were heading toward Jerusalem. So some think that they're just suggesting that, look, they're headed for Jerusalem, they're just trying to avoid Samaria on this particular journey. Uh, Could be. Could be. And those same people and also some others who, you know, don't necessarily agree with the first part of that kind of feel like, well, we're, we're headed to that area of Perea again. Could be. Don't know for sure. Uh, all we know is beyond the Jordan. And we've seen Jesus favor a couple of spots. Maybe this is what we're talking about. But it, it is not all that important for, for w- the context of what we're doing here. Now, in our timeline, it, it's kind of interesting. There are crowds again. And he's he's teaching them because what's he been trying to do most recently? Samuel, he went to Perea. He went to what did we call it? Like Ephraim up above Jerusalem, that kind of thing. What was he trying to do?
1: Uh, Isn't he trying to avoid people and crowds?
0: Yeah, yeah, he's been doing that because he knows the end is near. Got to make sure I don't you know blow the timing. And and now here he is. He's with crowds and he's teaching. Uh, He's also healing. It it, it would seem as if he's no longer trying to remain hidden or secret. But again, we don't know. Maybe the timeline is messed up, or we talked about this before. Maybe he just feels a little safer, you know, hiding in plain sight, in a crowd, whatever. I don't know. But wherever he was, there were Pharisees around. Very believable if they were traveling toward Jerusalem. But they wanted to test him. Now, as always, we've said this a number of times, it would be unwise to assume that they have some sort of bad or evil intent. They might, but they could also just be sincerely interested in his interpretation of the law. It's a good thing to test others when they're talking about this or that, especially someone who... You know, the crowds believing he's Messiah and all. It's good to test. So we don't know for sure, and and we shouldn't jump to that conclusion. The text doesn't really force us in either direction, but to, you know, I mean, it's important to note the text does not explicitly point out any bad intention. So it seems reasonable to give them the benefit of the doubt. Samuel, are all Pharisees bad? Nope. Is every encounter with the Pharisees combative? No. No. So, you know, we're just going to go ahead and accept them as sincere, for now, uh, until something would make us believe differently. So the question that comes up, or the test that these Pharisees were bringing uh, to Jesus, whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, that's what it said in the Mark version, but I'm going to sneak back up here to the Matthew version. This is Matthew 19, verse 3, and it says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay? And, and I think that that's important, especially understanding the the time that Jesus was around, what was going on. So there's a great debate going on in Jesus's day. And Samuel, just to sort of get us in tune, read from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Not, not the whole thing, just that first part.
1: When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a a certificate of divorce.
0: Yeah, and the text goes on, but the, the, the key part here is that a husband is finding some indecency in a wife, okay? So what's this great debate? Well, we've talked about these two guys before because they were very influential in the time. You've got Hillel... On one side, who, by the way, Jesus agreed with most of the time. But in this case, he was so liberal on this topic that he said a man could divorce a woman for just about anything. And we use that proverbial phrase he could divorce his wife if she burns the toast. (laughs) It's just a way of saying the smallest thing, right? Now, Shammai who Jesus rarely agreed with, except, okay, he does now, he said that divorce must be rare and only for the most egregious offenses. And those would be things like sexual immorality or adultery. Those are kind of separate things in Jesus's day. And this would be uh, when a death sentence could not be carried out because adultery carried in a death sentence with it. But if that could not be done, then divorce was uh, a reasonable option. Now, it's very understandable that these Pharisees would be interested in Jesus's interpretation, his opinion. It's a very, very hot debate. So according to Mark, the way Jesus approaches this, he first wants to know. Okay, Pharisees, what does Moses say? Or what does the law say? What does the Torah say? And in the text, they answer correctly. They say, Moses allowed for divorce. And, and the, the law, the Torah, it doesn't provide a lot of detail around that, which obviously that's why there's this big debate. Now, Jesus totally knows that this is the correct answer. He knows it's the true answer that the law does indeed allow for divorce. And it's important to notice he's not actually refuting that in any way. But what he does do is explain, as he has done in so many different ways with the Torah, the better way. or What's the real point of the Torah? What's it leading you to, right? And so this would be his interpretation. Now, Even though the law allows it, we shouldn't enter into it lightly. And then why does Jesus say? Because it's a corruption of the intended relationship or the intended plan. So what Jesus does, he goes back to, you know, like even before the law, we're talking back to like the creation of man, Genesis 1 and 2 and he highlights God's original intention, and, and uh, you know he quotes from it. I know he's quoting from Genesis 2.24, uh, somewhere in chapter 1 as well. I didn't go look at that. So, so God—and this, this is an, an interesting concept. It may be a little strange to you, but this is so important for you to see. God originally created man—okay, now this is more in the Genesis 2 story, Genesis 2 and 3. He created man— as whole or complete within himself. And if we could say it this way, you might think that Adam, that that first moment when he's created, formed from the dust of the ground, Adam originally had both genders within him. He was both male and female. But then... As the story continues, we know that God took a portion of the man and fashioned the woman, Eve. And so now you 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 see it. It's like, oh, oh, Adam used to be this one thing. And I mean, I guess we wouldn't have looked at it and said, oh, he's got two gender. It wouldn't have looked that way. He was just, he was man. He was Adam, Adam. But God created the two from the one And it's like, oh, okay, so what I left over, I'm going to call that male or man. And what I took out and formed anew, I'm going to call that woman or female. And so now that you have that image, you understand that the two parts came from a single whole. Marriage, it's only by rejoining the two parts, those two becoming one flesh again, if you understand what I'm saying, the picture that I'm painting, by marrying, that man can be whole again or complete again. The two individually are incomplete, but joined together in marriage, now they are a single whole, and that is the greatest, most fulfilling thing. And in a way, Side note, it's kind of like a little micro example of the unity of God. Uh, Or, you know, you might think of it like the idea of the Trinity or whatever. God's unity and oneness is comprised of multiple, and then it depends on what word you want to use here. A lot of people just say persons, So you've got like the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Spirit. But they together are a unified or united whole a one. God is one. And so marriage, it's kind of like that. Husband and wife, they they are one. Now, by the way, that whole thing about God and multiple persons or the Trinity or whatever, Jews, as a general rule, they're really going to fight that idea. But historically, traditionally, there is plenty of room for this in Hebraic thought. And it's not going outside the bounds. In fact, it fits with so much of things they talk about in their history. But we're not trying to get into an argument or a fight or anything about that. I'm just saying they're going to fight it today, modern Judaism, but there's there's room for uh, that Christian idea, which, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's one thing we got right-ish. So anyway, uh, for what's worth, this same logic— It it works for polygamy, too. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Torah allows it, but it isn't the way it's supposed to be. The ideal is monogamy. So am I saying that we should, you know, have uh, multiple wives? Goodness, no. Never. I, I am not a fan in any way. But in the same way, I'm not a fan of divorce. The difference is, there is there is no reason that you have to or should or need to marry a second time that, that, that's just that's not even an argument divorce however it's a complicated issue and harder and and the fact that the uh the torah leaves room for it uh, etc it it makes it it's a, it's a real thing we need to continue to uh, examine and address and and deal with it so anyway back to the point Jesus's point is simply this, God had or has a better, more perfect way for marriage to be. And so, if we, all of us, all of us husbands, all of us wives, if we would enter into it humbly, imitating the unity that is in God himself, okay, there would be no need for divorce. Now, obviously, that's that's an idealistic view, that is the way it was created. If we did that, we would know the fulfillment, the joy, the completion of our very selves. And in addition, if we're not experiencing that, the diagnosis is actually quite simple. It is some form of hardness of heart. And what are some of the words we would use today? You might say, well, it's You know, there's some sort of selfishness or there's some sort of self-centeredness or, uh, you know, I I don't know, some way prioritizing your own desires over your mate's desires or or whatever, which, Samuel, does that not sound unbelievably like what happened in the garden story yet again? Mm. Yeah. Elevating our own will above God's led to sin and death elevating our own will or desires or whatever over our spouse, our mate, well, it also is going to lead to pain and suffering and, you know, quote-unquote death. Not, not, not really, but you, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's a bad thing, and it, it's hard. It, being married, boy, we keep talking over and over about how being a Christian is a really, really high calling. It's hard, hard, hard. You know what? Marriage can be really, really hard. Two people have to make a really concerted effort toward it. It's a big deal. But he adds this a little bit about what God has joined. Let not man separate. Now, it's important that we all see this. Jesus isn't changing the law. He's not removing some portion of the law. This isn't creating a, all right, if you're a Christian, no divorce, no matter what type of living. That that's not what's happening, and all you have to do is think for a minute, a minute about just some things that we know exist in the world: uh, abuse, or I mean, he mentions it right in the text, adultery, or you know, things like this. The point is that divorce is outside of God's perfect or intended will, but. It is also useful for limiting the damage that humans can do to one another. Jesus is highlighting the natural bond and the supernatural bond that exists in marriage, and he's encouraging the care and the protection of it from both persons because it's ultimately for our own joy and our own fulfillment. But don't take this and go to that that extreme where you're literally going to cause people far more hurt and pain by remaining married than you ever would by supporting them through something as awful as a divorce. So there you go. Wow,
1: that was a lot. (laughs) Yeah. That's so many things that came to mind for me uh, hopefully this is just kind of starting from the beginning of this section and <laughs> moving down um, when we were at the beginning talking about the whole point of this section when the Pharisees were asking him this and we said that it doesn't all have to be ingenuine. genuine um, think about what the Apostle Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 he says, like, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then at the end of that verse, he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's yeah. will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So, yes, I mean, Paul right there is saying that you need to be able to test the things that are around you in your world, in your reality, in your circles of life to be able to discern is this within the boundaries of what God has laid out in his instruction for yeah. life um, and some of the Pharisees could have been doing this for sure
0: exactly good one Samuel
1: I also wanted to point out um, I really really like the last verse in the Matthew section Matthew nineteen eight, and it's like for me it's another example of Jesus explaining how divorce wound up in the scriptures he says he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so, or it was not supposed to be that way. Right. Um, and that's just, this is just another example of where we see God meeting, coming alongside humanity with whatever it is that they're struggling with to be able to adopt themselves, align themselves to his standards to, to like help them. Um, and what I mean by that is... Like the flood account in Genesis, if you didn't know, like there were several other flood accounts in ancient Eastern Mesopotamian culture besides the biblical account, like one that comes off the top of my mind is, you may have heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, That is like a Babylonian, is it Babylonian?
0: Uh, You know what? I don't know. You caught me by surprise. I get it all confused. Let's just say Middle
1: Eastern. It's a Middle Eastern flood account (laughs) where there's a God as one of the characters, but it's totally not in the way that we see God in terms of um, loving, compassionate, going out of his way to try to save and redeem humanity. Um, It's much more conquering. And so God takes that narrative that these people would have been familiar with and flips it on its head to showcase... Like, you may be familiar with this account, but let me actually show you what the true God is like um, through the story that you are aware of. And then let's just think of another example. Um, When the nation of Israel was established and they were crying out to God that we want to be like other nations and we want to have a king rule over us. And God was like, why do you need that? Like. I am your king, I am your leader. You don't need that, but th- it got to a point where God conceded and it's like, "Okay, like if this is what you think is going to help you continue to follow me, I'll allow it." So, yeah. it's just this very dynamic nature of God that the Western church doesn't seem to showcase as much that I mean, he's so patient and compassionate and willing to like not bend in the sense that he's changing his values or his integrity. But, right. like, he's, he's trying every which way to get us to follow him. Um, right. And this and this stuff with divorce is just yet another reason of that.
0: Yeah. It, from the outside, it looks so much like when we try to be a good parent. mm And the things that we do along the way, we, we, we end up doing stuff like this, too. So it's crazy.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then finally, this, when you talked all about marriage and the incompleteness of man versus woman and the coming together paints this true, complete picture of what humanity looks like. I can't remember if we've talked about this in previous episodes, but all the way back in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, the text says that um, God says, I will create a helper opposite opposite of him, uh, cons- yeah. like he's referring to Adam, and Actually, there's this Hebrew phrase called "edzer konegdo," and that that means um, the help that opposes. It, it's re- referencing that text that says a helper opposite of him. And yeah. if you get this picture in your mind, if you if you have two planks, like a two two by fours, you set them on the ground, and then you lay each one against one another to where their the top edges are resting against one another they they rest there perfectly. Uh, they're not moving or falling, and it showcases that each one of those planks has an equal and opposite force or attraction that's keeping the whole unit together. Upright, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I haven't done this in a while, but um, I'm actually going to quote something from the Talmud, which is kind of cool. Nice! Um, so it ra- says, The Talmud records Rabbi... Elezar uh, saying, "What is the meaning of that which is written? I will make a helper opposite of him." This is what it means: if a man is worthy, his wife helps him; if he is unworthy, she opposes him. <laughs> so, it, like it's it's showcasing that marriage is like this true mirror of yeah. your heart, the the values that you find important, the things that you are pursuing, and like if you're investing yourself in showcasing God's characteristics in your marriage, you're gonna see fruit from that and goodness and growth, progress. But if like what we said in the garden, if you're if all you're using in your marriage is to pursue your own will's will over your spouse's or over God's Then it's going to showcase itself in opposition, like strife, conflict, maybe divorce, like what we just talked about in this section. So it's just—I love that picture so much, and I hope it gives people a better understanding of, you know, the equal contribution that both partners in marriage have to make in order for it to work. Yeah,
0: yeah. Again, it's it's a hard thing, but the fulfillment is great. It really is. Just. I don't know why, while you were talking, I felt like just one more thing I wanted to say out loud. I've heard in my life so many different people saying, hey, marriage isn't 50-50, it's 100-100, meaning you just need to give everything and don't worry about the other person and, and you know, that kind of stuff, which there's so much about that that is true and good, you know, whatever. But, okay, can we just be honest for a second? One person— cannot make a marriage work you could have one person who was let's just say they're just a saint but if the other person's a complete butthole you know what that that marriage is gonna suck <laughs> it just is and so uh, it, it's it's important that you understand it always is going to require both people really given their all that's just it's a thing and and okay should you in that context, be willing to give a hundred and, and not worry so much about what your partner was doing, just worry about yourself. Yeah, I think that's probably a good approach in in many times, in many ways. But again, it, it's got to be effort coming from both sides. If not, these two things that are leaning against each other are just going to fall over. Yeah. You can't, the, can't right, have
1: one. Right back to that plank example, if you yeah. only have one board... It, it's, this is funny because we talk about works and working out your faith, uh, going to a physics example. There's actually an <laughs> equation for work. Work equals force times displacement. So if you only have one plank exerting all of the work in that that dynamic, that um, yeah. connection, it's just going to topple over. It's going to fall. You need, yeah. you need work from both sides pushing against one another to keep the whole unit standing.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's good. So I don't know how many marriages we've just saved, Samuel, but we're going on because actually the disciples were kind of bothered by this. Uh, seriously, you didn't have anything else, did you? No. Okay. Uh, the disciples are kind of bothered by this, so let's see what they've got to say. What uh, we're looking at two different sections again. This is Matthew chapter nineteen, verses nine through twelve, and Mark chapter ten, verses ten through twelve. But Because they've got some added stuff, I'm going to read a little bit from both. So I'm going to start with Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, says this. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another... She commits adultery. And now I'm going to go on. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 19. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Wow, what? This all about. Let's all right. Let's get in. What do we got? So, as we can, I think, surmise from the text, Jesus's view on divorce, like in in the previous section, was really stretching the hearer. So much so that the disciples feel like they need to kind of prod and poke and question a little more. Once you know they're alone. Now, side note: Mark says they're in the house. Not a house, the house, like we're supposed to know where that is. Uh, But, I mean, we have no clue, because right now we're somewhere beyond the Jordan, so we don't have any anchor to to tie this to, but whatever. Jesus, I mean, obviously, I'm sure he knows he's already stretching them, but then he decides to give his views not just on divorce, but now he goes on to adultery. So where he had, in some sense, he had diminished the scope of divorce, or at least what he thought was reasonable and allowable kind of a thing. He now seems to be expanding the scope of what you might consider adultery. Now, this, this is important. Again, back in Jesus's day, the common interpretation of adultery was, it was very peculiar, very specific. A man had a sexual relationship with a married woman woman Now if if you were listening you, it probably seems to you like the prohibition was strangely limited to the married woman Now to be fair they weren't suggesting that everything else was okay or that any particular other thing was okay it's just that it would have been some sort of forbidden sexual immorality it it, it just wasn't that specific title of adultery And that was important because adultery carried a death penalty with it. Sexual immorality did not. So it's important that you get that part. However, Jesus, (laughs) he's suggesting that if either a husband or a wife divorces their spouse and marries another, that they're committing adultery. Now, okay, that's already so far outside their box. They would have heard this and they would have been going, What? There's no way. That doesn't make any sense at all. What are you talking about? But it's especially weird given that Jewish women in Jesus' day, they didn't have any legal option for divorcing their husband. Now, I am going to add, though, it was common for the community to, I don't know, encourage or maybe you would say force a husband to divorce a wife if she had a legitimate complaint. So it wasn't as if a woman who was being mistreated or or something like that, it wasn't as if she had no help, no no avenue or anything like that. She just didn't really have a, a legal one. She couldn't just walk in and say, hey, I would like to divorce my husband. It didn't work like that, but the community would band together on her behalf and bring justice for her. said, just to say, that's the thing. So, and also, if you notice in Matthew's version, it provides us with a little caveat. It says, it's talking about divorcing a spouse due to sexual immorality or unfaithfulness. And so, uh, although, you know, Jesus's from the previous section that we read, somebody could try to walk away with, there's never a reason for divorce. Well, already right here, there seems to be an acceptable reason for divorce. Uh, maybe it's not, again, ideal, but it's allowable. It's acceptable. And I don't know if you remember, this goes way back to the Sermon on the Mount. It agrees with Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Just remind us, Samuel, what did that say? And this is Jesus talking.
1: But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality.
0: Okay, we can just stop right there. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So so this was a very real thing. So we, we're left with this important point. A legitimate divorce—now now get this—a legitimate divorce frees both parties to remarry. And when they do, there's no—you know, nobody would think that was adultery or anything bad or whatever— because the divorce is legitimate. However, an illegitimate divorce did not. So in the same way that Jesus, you know, he did things like, you know, he, he took murder, thou shalt not murder, and he sort of brought that into the realm of, hey, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. Well, now he's he's equating men with women, men and women together, they're they're being equated in the adultery department, right? It used to just be, it had to be a married woman for it to count as adultery, and he's going, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, If you were married, man or woman, and you do this thing, that's adultery too. This is new and radical, and, you know, his disciples, and I'm sure anybody else who did hear it or would have heard it, they thought this was crazy. But it ultimately promoted monogamy, the, the, what we were seeing in Genesis. Again, it, it's, it's, it is a continuation of that story, and it is a better interpretation or understanding of Torah. But <laughs> I don't know. It depends on how you read it. I look at it. I think the disciples' response, it's comical to me. Hmm. They're hearing Jesus talk like this, and they're going, oh. If, if what you're saying is true, people shouldn't even get married anymore. I mean, that's terrible, right? What if, and, and this is a, Samuel, I'm not even joking. Being serious for you, What if you really don't like each other? I remember in this day, most people didn't, they, they didn't like meet and fall in love or date or any of those things they were just set up hey son this is who you're going to marry congratulations what if you really didn't like each other uh, that's a, it's a real thing and it happened of course now if you're acting properly as a husband or wife meaning that you are actually you know doing performing expressing love and respect and honor you know serving one another one another this this is a tough job but in theory, it would fix those kind of circumstances. I don't really like them or, you know, whatever. And and I'm just going to say, little side note, I've actually experienced this. I was in a, a relationship where uh, it was, uh, let's just be clear, it was my first marriage. And whatever love, whatever like, whatever even I can stand or tolerate, when I, it was just gone. But I went through, I had some, you know, people speaking into my life. They, you know, do this, do this, whatever. I actually started doing what a husband is supposed to do. I behaved in a way that a loving husband would behave. Sad news, it didn't save the marriage. We ended up being divorced. However, it was the craziest thing. I actually was able to. To look at this person again, anew, and feel affection, love, care, concern, and it wasn't because of anything she was doing or saying. It was because of what I was doing and saying. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But anyway, that's just a side note. But they they were saying back to the the uh, apostles. Man, people shouldn't even get married. What they were trying to say is that, you know, we should all just remain celibate. I mean, that's really what it boiled down to. Now, obviously, on one hand, this is an exaggeration of what Jesus is saying. He wasn't really making that point. And further, if everybody quit marrying, and, you know, that this is a direct violation of Torah, we are supposed to fill the earth. Okay? So, being fruitful and multiplying, all of that, it, that goes all the way back even to the creation of man. But since they brought it up and they're, they're bringing up, man, we should all just remain celibate, whatever, so Jesus is going to add some clarification. On one hand, he's saying that the disciples, you know, I mean, they're correct. In one way, it may be in a special circumstance, it may actually be better to not marry. But (laughs) he also is very, very clear that this saying about, you know, being better not to marry, it's not for everyone. There are those, and I'm going to say a few, there are those for whom this saying is in fact true, but it's a very, very few people. There are those who are given this path in life, or this is their walk, whatever, now, there are also those maybe maybe they're celibate due to a birth defect, that's the eunuch from birth, and some who are celibate due to mutilation by man, okay, people making each other eunuchs. I don't know if that I don't even know where that happens in the world today. I'm sure it probably is, but we don't know it here in America. They're very real things, but there's nothing inherently good about them. Uh, There's nothing—nobody's really called to that, and nobody nobody should be considered righteous because of that. That's just—it's just a thing. It's part of life for some people across time. But when one is celibate for the sake of the kingdom, meaning that they are living in obedience to God— God is actually leading them to this, like through some specific instruction of some kind, however that may come about, well, then this statement about it's better not to marry, well, it, it is true, but it's it's only in that special case that it's true. And, you know, this isn't, this isn't, uh, definitely isn't some uh, specific uh, form of asceticism you know, or some, some sort of denying the flesh or, you know, any of those kind of things. It's it's not that. It's just some, some special calling. But anyway, that's all I've got to say about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, again, uh, there's so much stuff packed into these sections of text that Jesus is offering to the listeners that, like you said, would have been very tough for them to hear based on what they might have been taught about the law potentially incorrectly Um, and this is again just Jesus trying to showcase the spirit of the law, the true intention of the law that the Jewish leadership may have missed out on or they have interpreted incorrectly through their oral teachings and he's trying to say, like, no, this is what God actually meant whenever he he uh, intently expressed this in the Torah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we can't be looking at it like he's making new law. Think about the circumstance. The Pharisees, they were super big on keeping the rules, but they would missed the point of the law, the end goal of the law. So when Jesus is saying these things... And then people come along after him and go, oh, well, there it is. Jesus said it. No one should ever divorce ever, period, the end. Okay, you're doing exactly the same thing the Pharisees did, and you're missing the point of what he's saying. He's trying to, he's not adding something new. He's just taking you back to what Torah already says and helping you understand the real ideal contained within it. So, yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, and to the disciples reaction where they're saying it's better for everybody not to get married um again i've I've referenced the apostle paul more than once but in his letter to the church in corinth first corinthians chapter seven the first couple verses he kind of touches on this he says in the beginning of the chapter now for the matters you wrote about quote it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or you know to it's to that end, and then in verse 2 he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring or rampant, some translations say that, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He's basically saying it takes a very, very special person to be able to pursue celibacy and not marrying because that desire within humanity uh, is is very strong and difficult to maintain and that marriage is this avenue, this space where it can be practiced safely, health healthily uh, in a way that is beneficial and not destructive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually for goodness. Yeah. Good one. Another good one, Samuel. Anything else? That's all I got. Alright. Yeah, these are, it feels like On one hand, I feel like I'm talking quickly and getting through stuff. And on the other hand, it feels like this is moving a little slowly. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Let's do one more section at least, see what we got here. Uh, I don't know. Kind of a big change of topics again. Uh, And we're covering multiple sections. We're looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, and Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. I'm going to read from Mark. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, Shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Oh, I I like this part, Samuel. I don't know what you or anybody else is going to think. This is good stuff right here. So, so let's just get our head in the game. We're back with the crowds, okay? So we're not in the house anymore, whatever that part was about, right? We're back with the crowds, and people are bringing children to him, and I, I think realistically with with the the text that we're looking at whatever i mean this could be all ages you know anything from infant on up we just don't really know covers a wide range but they just want him jesus to touch them as in like culturally we're talking about laying hands on them praying over them imparting blessing on them now this was this was super common cultural behavior, and from multiple sources. It could have been from fathers, many circumstances, but like the easy one is thinking about Sabbath. It could have been from teachers, if, if you had rabbis or teachers when you were young kids or whatever, priests, and, and others. I mean, this this was just a common thing. And for some reason, and honestly, in the text, it's kind of inexplicable. For some reason, disciples don't like this. And so they rebuke the people and try to make them stop bringing their kids to Jesus. Now, I find this very difficult to understand. Maybe somebody somewhere's got a good reason for it. I don't know. I don't even know how much we really care other than it, you know, it sets up the story. But it just seems so weird because it definitely doesn't fit with what we've already seen Jesus teaching the disciples concerning children. It's like... I don't know. It's like they weren't listening, or they, I don't know. They've lost their minds. But maybe, and now trying to get on their side, whatever, maybe the crowds were just becoming, I don't know, overwhelming, or, or whatever, preventing, you know, hey, we're never going to make Jerusalem in time. But I, I don't know. Whatever it might be. Whatever it was, I'm sure the disciples thought they were being helpful, but they weren't. Jesus didn't like it. He, he actually, I mean, he gets angry. His passion is ignited by what he views as an injustice for these kids. And and he was indignant, at least according to Mark. He instructed them to let the children come to him. Do not hinder them. And he even adds a reason. He didn't have to, but he did. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I don't know, side note, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this now when just a moment ago we were talking about celibacy, but whatever. (laughs) Maybe maybe, maybe that was the reason the disciples were upset. Their minds were still reeling about, I'm going to be celibate forever. I don't know. (laughs) I doubt it. But anyway, he went further. Okay, so so the reason is the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and he went further to say that no one can enter the kingdom unless they receive it in the same manner that a child does now what does that mean this this is the part that i love so children they are naturally humble and i know there's a bunch of parents out there who got the weird look on their face most of the time i get it they accept their humble status in the family quite naturally and what I mean by that is, remember, they start out as an infant, utter dependence, and they grow through that and out of that ultimately. But they they have that dependent state or, or or understanding concept, and and that is a naturally humble kind of thing. They they consider others a lot of times as more important than themselves, and I mean that you know in the best possible way they they do as they're told and again I've been a parent mostly all right I get it but it's 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 with an almost inherent understanding that it is for their good they are completely trusting for their care for their good at the hands of their parents or you know whoever is is caring for them now they don't not really they don't want to run the household. I know they get in their little moods and they try to get their way or they try to, you know, rule through manipulation or whatever and you know, good parenting doesn't allow for any of that. But they don't they don't really want to run the household. Not really. And so, here's the point. If we want to enter the kingdom, if we want to receive the kingdom, We have to be childlike in the same ways toward God. We have to let go of our desires, our will, our control, and trust God for our care. Trust God for our good. Be dependent. Be humble toward God. Accepting our status. Considering others more important than ourselves doing as we are, you know, told, instructed in the Torah, knowing that it is for our good, entrusting our care to him. And this this doesn't get talked about a lot in churches or anywhere, but listen, it is a requirement to enter the kingdom. And I'm just going to say, this is another great moment for me, you, all of us, to have some honest self-reflection, some honest self-awareness, some honest review, critique of ourselves and our lives. Are we the same way that a child receives, let's just say, a family, a child receives the, the goodness of you know that that little mini kingdom of his family and his place in it we have to be that same way toward God and his kingdom, and in that sense we have to be like a child and I just think that image it's it's missing or rare and so important, and we all need to have it and i again I just love it mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's so good. Um, and to all the things that you brought to the table about coming or receiving the kingdom of God like a child and thinking about at the beginning of this section how the, Jesus' disciples were reacting, It it's one of those moments where when we need to give the benefit of the doubt, there was something probably going on deeper that we can't see in the text that was leading them to respond the way that they were doing when these children were being brought to Jesus, but it's still very hard for me to understand on this side of things um, how they were so in opposition to children coming to him uh, and to that end. uh, Like, it would have been, at least if they knew their text and they knew the traditions of their forefathers, like they they would have known that children have always been a part of God's story and God's narrative. And um, two birds in one stone, Paul. I'm going to reference the Talmud again. So nice. Uh, so do you know in in Torah in Exodus whenever God takes them out of Egypt, out of slavery, he brings them to Sinai to quote-unquote marry them, it gives them the law, everything, and afterwards, uh, the text says, like, I think there's a, a whole section where, like, if you have subheadings in your Bible, it'll say, like, the Song of Israel. Like, mm-hmm. after all that happened, the the whole nation sang a song in thanks to to God for... Delivering them, um, and yeah. so this this passage is referring to that. And I'll have the references here when I read it. So it's the the Talmud is referencing or ex, ex, interpolating meaning from Psalm eight two, which says, "From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your enemies to do away with the enemy and the revengeful." And so the sages were trying to find meaning from that, and they say. The Talmud says the sages taught that this one particular rabbi said at the time that the Jewish people ascended from the sea, they resolved to sing a song of gratitude to God. And how did they recite this song? And this is it's going to sound crazy, but I hope you see why I'm bringing it into our discussion here. (laughs) If a baby was lying on his mother's lap or an infant was nursing from his mother's breasts, once they saw the divine presence, the baby straightened his neck, and the infant dropped the breast from his mouth, and they recited, and this is coming straight from the text, Exodus fifteen two, this is my God, and I will glorify him. And then they say, as it is stated in Psalm 8, 2, out of the mouths of babies and sucklings you have founded strength. <laughs> um, so, like, They would have had pictures of that in their mind. It's like, yeah, like, children, infants, have been glorifying God ever since he redeemed us from Egypt. And that that should have been on the disciples' minds, Um, and it's just unfortunate that they didn't.
0: Yeah. Well, think about this. So who looks bad in this little section?
1: The disciples do.
0: Yeah. And who wrote this text? The the, disciples. The disciples. The disciples. Yeah. I think that's so amazing that they can be so honest, even Mm. in the presentation of themselves. That's cool. Yeah. So so Jesus was doing this thing, and then, well, okay, so here's what we did, (laughs) and then here's what Jesus did. (laughs) It's like, oh, my gosh. That's really cool. Yeah. How many of us would have been like, let's see. I think I'm going to present it this way <laughs> so that I don't look quite so bad. And you never know. Maybe they did, and maybe it was way worse than even what we're reading. I don't know. But, yeah, it's it's a neat picture to understand that they're willing to throw themselves under the bus so that you can see and understand Jesus' life and ministry and teaching and everything. It's, it's so good. So mm-hmm. good.
1: Part of me wonders whether John would have written it in that way because he's. It seems like in his gospel, he's very keen to referring himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and you know the 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 beloved disciple outran Peter to the empty tomb and stuff. (laughs) So I part of me's like John wouldn't have, but I know that's that's just me joking.
0: Yeah, who knows? Who knows? All right, anything else, Samuel?
1: No, just to remind the listeners, leave us ratings and reviews on your podcasting app to help the algorithm bring this message to many more people.
0: Yeah, you know what? I'm going to say something about that because I never do. Here's the thing. The, the, The podcast numbers, whatever, they're just stagnant. It's like we've got this group of people who seem to listen regularly, and I can only assume that's because they're enjoying it, But the numbers stopped growing. It doesn't make any sense. So if you're listening to this podcast and you think you're getting something out of it, you know what? You need to start telling people. You need to start spreading the word, saying, hey, you got to listen to this stuff. These guys are worth hearing among the chorus of people that they're already hearing, right? But I'm just saying, don't be shy. If this is valuable, spread the wealth. Now, I leave it to you, Samuel. We're done. <laughs> okie dokie. Oh!
1: Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokimos Most podcast. You can find out more information about the podcast at wwwokie Please feel free to send us any questions or comments at our email address, okie at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.